everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast where writers sit around, drink tasty beverages, and talk about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. There will be rants and raves and opinions that may not agree but are lovingly delivered. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Your bench today includes Chaz and Karen Brenchley and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 180. Welcome back, Alma. Alma Alexander, everyone. Woohoo! Thank you for having me. I'm so delighted because you, you I loved your sisterhood of the Jin Chi. I I even said that wrong. I just get so excited off the top of my head. But today you have something kind of new and excited coming out with your world weavers. Tell us a little bit about your world weavers universe. Where did it come from? Where did you get this great idea? Uh, where do you get your idea of the famous question? Yeah, but you have a good one for this. So I want you to yeah. share it. <laughs> Yeah, well, basically, uh, this whole thing started in a young adult panel on um, at the World Fantasy Con in 2002, to which I went, and trust me, at this point, I had zero intention or, or idea about writing young adult fiction as such. I was, as far as I, as far as I was concerned, I was a, an adult novelist. But I went to this young adult panel because it had Jane Yolen on it, and I think Jane Yolen is a goddess. So, um, I kind of went in there to 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 see what she had to say, and um, we all went in there and we sat down and we started discussing young adult. But remember, two thousand and two. This was an era in which it was Harry Potter, and then a lot of empty spaces before anything else came up. Harry Potter was the behemoth that ruled young adult. And at some point, nearly like 15 or 20 minutes into the panel, somebody in the back of the room stuck up a hand and said something about but Harry Potter and Jane just rolled her eyes inside and said, I was wondering how long it would be before that particular elephant walked into the room. For what it's worth, Jane Yolen, if you're out there, we all worship you universally and would love to talk to you. My God. <laughs> so uh, what essentially happened at that point is that I lost the rest of the panel because I was sitting in the back of the room cogitating about world weavers because th that thing just sprang from my forehead like Athena from the forehead of Zeus. <laughs> and it's a different, I, first of all, I love it because it involves a girl, not just yet another chosen boy. Well, for a start, it's as American as Harry Potter is English and it involves a lot of uh, like Native American Southwestern mythos. And one of the main characters and the character which I absolutely fell in love with and he he grew to have a bigger and bigger role because I couldn't stop him was Coyote the Trickster. Oh, um, my favorite. Yeah, he he, just, he was lovely. He was a lovely character to write. He was just so good. And then um, that was part of it. The other part of it was, of course, there was a girl who was the main character and not the boy. And my my girl was uh, what I call the double seventh. She was the seventh child of two seventh children. She was supposed to be, in her world, the most magical of the magical that was possible, except she couldn't do magic at all. Like, I mean, she could, it's not that she was bad at it. She couldn't do it. And this is, is yours a little bit, in your world, is it a little bit more overt, for instance, is magic known or is it like, in Harry Potter, it was secret from the muggles? Oh no, in my world, magic is mainstream and th there is even such a thing as a federal bureau of magic, which yeah. comes into play at later stage. Um, but the point is that, that she was the ultimate magical creature who then 
became a damn squib. And um, at one point she was taken back in time to an Anasazi shaman, which is where all the Native American uh, mythological stuff starts coming in. And where she learns to do something very, very special, um, which she never knew she could do before. But then she gets goes back and she still can't do magic. And she gets taken to um, a school in which in their magical world, they take all the kids that can't do magic for whatever reason. Like there's a pair of twins in there who are allergic to magic. So they can't really go to a school, a normal school, because otherwise they choke on it. He can't utter a magical word because it's anaphylactic. Um, things like that. Um, but then she gets taken there because she can't do magic and she gets taken to the what is colloquially known as the last ditch school for the incurably incompetent. Uh, <laughs> oh. Where she finds out that uh, she can do something that, that nobody thought was possible. And that was in that world, the last magical barrier where which was supposed to be un, you know, impossible to cross is computers. Computers were impervious to magic, except that my girl can do magic with computers. Ooh. I like it. Um, and she finds that out the hard way. She kind of, you know, falls flat on her face and discovers that she can do something with a computer that no one else can. Um, so that was the introduction. That was the gift of the unmade. That was the first book. Um, and the second book, uh, what happens is that the whole computer Frontier gets shattered when the book is called Spell Spam, which should give you an idea. Mm. What happens is that the spam that you get in your email suddenly starts carrying live spells. Ooh. And the opening spam in the book is something that touts you get the clearest skin you can possibly imagine, except when you look down on your hand as you're typing that as you're opening the spam, the skin is transparent. <laughs> Oh, oh, I like it. Um, and things like that. The things, the unintended consequences of this stuff, and it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And um, Thea, my 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 protagonist Thea, um, basically gets um, involved in this because it transpires that there, that she isn't the only one who can deal with magic in computers. There has to be someone else because somebody else is doing this. So she gets involved in the hunt. And um, that book is possibly the darkest of the books because she gets called upon to do something that is really, really hard. And none of the adults in her world basically step up to do anything. They just shove her in there and said, you do it. And it nearly destroys her because it's she's still a kid and she's got to do this impossible thing, especially when it's something when it's to somebody who is very so much like herself. Hmm. It strikes me as oddly parallel with resource management now <laughs> <laughs> well um, and, and uh, what happens at this point is that they discover that uh, that she is tangled in elemental magic which is the rarest of them all and the only human being who was ever a quad elemental magic was nikola tesla ah. Oh. And they basically get involved with Nikola Tesla and travel in time and meet Nikola Tesla. And the third book, Cyber Mage, Nikola Tesla, this is the heart of the story, which is, which is, I love Cyber Mage as a book, as a story. I love it so much because it is so much, there's so much in it. There's this kind of a level of fairy tale-ness to it. There's mythology. There's there's a transcendence of what it means to be human and betrayal and love and friendship and everything is in there. I just love that book so much. 
Plus, Tesla's one of your countrymen, right? Yeah, well, he, he's my boy. Um, I actually went to New York to, um, to to do a little bit of research, and I stayed in his room in the New Yorker Hotel. Awesome. Oh, cool. Which, um, which was kind of awesome, yeah. And I went to see his pigeons in Bryant Park, and, and yeah, it was kind of nice to follow in his footsteps there. Um, so that was the original trilogy, basically. Um, and that was HarperCollins, right? That was published by HarperCollins in the early 2000s. And it was purchased for HarperCollins by a very senior editor who was absolutely magnificent. And I thought that she, of all possible people, she would be absolutely safe from anything, except until the moment that she wasn't. Uh, in the so-called bloodbath of 2008, when publishing got decimated by people were just getting let go left, right, and center. And my glorious editor called me up and said, they're letting me go. Let's pause for a second there, because this is the first, I think, that we've ever really talked about 2008 in anything in terms of, for a lot of people, there was a lot of economic downturn, my stock market, my 401k suffered. What happened in publishing? Was it just the same thing? Did What happened in 2008? Chaz, did this happen to you? Yeah, I did, totally. Um, you have to remember that books are elective purchases. You know, they're not like food and electricity and stuff. Yeah, but so is booze. Come on, it's just as addictive. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, um, publishing went through a mega crisis um, back then um, because people stopped buying books largely. And so, yeah, we, we too had massive layoffs. Hmm. So interesting. So what happens when somebody was your champion, your editor and owns your books at a publishing agency and then they just disappear? What happens to your books, Alma? Well, in this instance, uh, she told me she was going away um, and I got assigned another editor. But by this stage, all the editorial work was done. So he didn't have that much to do as such. He was just there as a sort of overseer kind of thing. And he wasn't all that interested. And in any event, he lasted for six months before he phoned me and told me that he was going off to a different publisher. So I got a third editor who didn't know anything about the books and frankly didn't care very much. Um, and in the interim period, I also had about four or five different publicists in that for these books. And, and if you can possibly imagine that these books are being passed from hand to hand to hand to hand, the idea is that these books completely tanked because there was nobody working for them or with them or championing them at all, to the point that book three, which was Cybermage, the heart's darling of the, the heart of the story, never made it into paperback at all. It was published in hardcover and it died. I was trying to think back at the time before I even went and looked. This was There was still B. Dalton and Barnes and Noble. But a lot of the bookstores, which had been the smaller ones were closed when the big ones rolled out and the big ones were starting to have financial difficulties. So I guess let's talk about how marketing wasn't really online yet. Really no, wasn't. no, it wasn't. And um, essentially, that's where things languished for a while. And I was in New York at one point. And I went to see HarperCollins people and I said to them, I wanted the books back so I could do something with them. And they said rather... Uh, snidely you know well of course but you know we're not going to be stand we're not going to stand in the way of your success so <laughs> thanks so they uh, eventually after a while of fighting and contract reading through the fine lines and fine tooth combs and what have you I finally got the rights back to those three books and 
the there was a, a startup small press which was run by a friend at the time and I I gave her the books to re um, to reissue and at that point I actually wrote book four in the trilogy which was Dawn of Magic which kind of tied all the loose ends together and brought me back to the beginning so it's a nice neat little circle now <laughs> um but so she published that like for the first time and she reissued books one, two, and three and she published number four. And unfortunately she was not really cut out to be a publisher and yeah. the, the publishing house <laughs> didn't last. <laughs> um, so here I was um, back with the books and back the rights came to me at some point and they, oh. she she had the books for seven years so i had to wait for seven years before i could get the rights back let's, oh, wow. let's pause for a minute and and focus there because that's another i think one of those misconceptions that well okay let's say harper collins like blew up in a terrible fiery thing they still own rights to books don't they what does it take to get your own book rights back i mean is it a lawyer is it a bunch of strongly worded letters persistence and blindness <laughs> yeah, you, really, um, you have to bully people to get the rights for your books back because if you don't they're just you know the easy thing to do is just sit back and forget that these things exist yep that's i've i've done that with so many books um but it's this one that interests me i mean if the publisher ceases to exist don't the rights come back to you automatically the answer to that from what i've seen just in because i've worked in sideways in the legal industry is that depends and probably <laughs> not because because everyone's going to be fighting over everyone's going to be fighting over the guts of the company and trying to get what they can themselves and it's just it'll be a, a, yeah. a free-for-all I suppose it's always easiest to do nothing but it seems like yeah, especially, especially when you're talking about a, a sort of mom and pop outfit like this was it's a very very small publishing house that was publishing a very limited number I mean basically I took a calculated risk letting her have these books to begin with but I wanted them out there so that's why I did it well back up a little bit how did you get them from Harper Collins is that just being even more stubborn or yeah I I, I kind of emailed them and phoned them and bugged them until they finally said fine have them okay okay but um, but, but basically that's just the way I mean just a sideways segue Harper Collins again it's the same thing Harper Collins uh, also published another uh, thing of mine which was initially published as a duology in New Zealand because it was a 250,000 words fantasy novel and the publisher who did it kind of went just split that puppy up so they <laughs> in two books so it was published as a duology and when it was republished in the United States in due time, it was republished as a duology. And then HarperCollins in their ultimate wisdom decided that they were going to let book two, which was the second half of the book really, uh, go out of print. Mm -hmm. uh. And then they hung on to the first part, the book one in the trilogy, which now ended on an unholy cliffhanger <laughs> mm -hmm. because it was supposed to go to the next chapter, not the next book, but you know, not, but now that was where it ended and the, the book two wasn't available. And it took me years of really, really hard work to get back the right. I don't know why they didn't want to let me have the right for book one yeah. if they finally you know, kicked off book two. I don't understand the business decision behind this. No, um, I mean, I I, um, I had my, my first fantasy series was published by Orbit in the UK um and 
it i mean it's 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 a it's much like yours alma it's it's a tale of sort of um catastrophic departures and 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 the book getting passed from hand to hand and people caring less and less about it um so that what was intended all the time to have been a four book series I was halfway through writing book three when they said, actually, Chaz, can you just wrap it up in three? Then, yeah, they they published it and supported it not at all. And yeah, it didn't sell very well. They just sort of hung on to it, although it wasn't selling. Um, and we started asking for the rights back. And they sort of ignored us for about 10 years, I think, um, before we finally got them. It creates another interesting point, and this is kind of a cautionary tale to writers out there. You may say to yourself, I have this perfect novel and it's going to, there's every chance that the Susanna could have been told as the publisher of, you know, Jonathan Norrell and Mr. Strange that, oh, no, 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 this is going to be a trilogy. So if you think you own everything for how your book is going to be presented to the world, best to abandon that. <laughs> but be ready to stick to your guns if you have a brilliant idea for how you want it to go, right, Alma? Well, I eventually got back the rights for book one, and I republished that as the as the one book it should have always been in the first place. It's the twentieth anniversary edition of, of, of it's called Changer of Days, and it's now a single novel, which is what it always should have been. And it's out there in a single book, so nobody can blame me anymore. They can't read the second half of it. No, <laughs> good, good. You know, in the meantime, my that same fantasy series um, of mine, uh, the three the three book version was republished in America as six slim volumes, um, and for three of them they kept the same titles, and they came up with titles for the other three, and <laughs> the I mean people are still yeah this was this was twenty twenty five years ago, and and I still get people saying. Um, um, look, I, I bought this volume under this title in America, and I'm, now I'm in England, and volume two doesn't seem to carry on from volume one at all, and and so yeah. on. Mm -hmm. And a, somehow, somehow the reader always blames the writer for these things. Yes. Of course, it's our fault. And that's well, why we want to make that clear. This is a setting the record straight. <laughs> As yeah, much as I want to say this, you know, I do not know 100% that of all of the series that I haven't gotten the third one or the next, it may not actually be the writer's fault. I'm still blaming George R.R. R. Martin, but for certain other people, they are allowed to have a little bit of a pass here and there for me of the, okay, you know, I understand that there could be things beyond their control. Which, which, which brings up a question. Um, you know, I'm going to throw it out to you guys and to the readers in general, but are you the kind of reader who waits until the series is finished before you buy the books and read them? Or do you buy the books and read and on trust and read them as they are published? Because people, if you don't buy book one and book two doesn't sell as well, book three is never going to be written at all. Well, see, I buy you, book one and then I buy book two and then I buy book three, and then I read them. Yes, yeah. But I always buy them. That's key. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I grew up buying everything when it came out. The only place I've stuttered on that now is George R. R. Martin, because every time he produces a new book, I have to go back to the beginning and read through everything all over again because I've forgotten so much, um, and I don't know where we are. Um, 
so so yeah i am now buying george i i do support i support writers writers need support so i do buy the books um and then yeah those, those particular books are stacking up what does bug me and i've tripped over this recently in something i just picked up the book because it was a fantasy that was a persian-based fantasy which was sufficiently unusual for me to be interested mm -hmm. And I picked it up and there was a thing that was touted as the sequel to it. And I picked that up as well, because as Karen said, you buy things. Um, and I read them both in, in sequence. And then I realized when I came to the end of book two, that in fact, it was not the end. It was going to carry on. And it really, really bugs me if you're going to write three books, or at least you, if you want to write three books, at least label them so that I know that there's book three coming. <laughs> Yes. I absolutely resented being told it was a sequel, which it wasn't. It was a bridge. What? Yes. That seems fair. So when, is, when are we going to get the fourth one? Because I have purchased now these exciting books on World Weaver. And I have another question that I had in the when When are we going to see book four? So November. That people, no, November. So you have right now time to buy it. Enjoy it on your summer. The solstice is an excellent time to buy a book about magic. So mm -hmm. spell spam <laughs> right now. Coming forward, you have one time to read one a month until November, and it will come out with these beautiful covers. I'm out looking at your covers on Amazon. And Actually, when, when I got the rights back and I was going to be putting them out, and I wanted to make sure that these things were done justice to because the covers for the, the second iteration, which was the, the little mom and pop small press, it had interesting but iffy covers and I didn't really care for them, but what can you do? Um, but when I came to this, I was in control and I basically found an artist in Australia who um, was willing to do me original work for these books. All of that were original bespoke art for these books. I have a sister that'll do that too. So let me know if you guys ever need covers to look at. <laughs> so on this, I also want to say one more thing out there. This book is really cool. If there's anybody listening out there that want to say things like, hey, you know, what does it take to get a book made into it a series? This is a very adaptable sort of thing. It's set in the present, right, Alma? So this could be like in an alternative version of today. Yeah, pretty much. There is an advantage when you say, why wasn't this book made into a movie? Why wasn't that? We learned recently with two guys that worked in film school and another one that made movies, the more your books are able to use, be made into a movie with stuff lying around your house, the more easier they were to do it. So consider if you want to pitch it out there, get an agent that says, hey, you want to make this out there? This is a neat way to look into that just by being a modern book that's still about magic, still about magic school, going away and learning things, but doesn't require everybody to have a new costume. Oh, yeah. good point. Although I suspect that this particular set of books is going to require a little bit of CGI. Uh, well, you know, magic generally, but <laughs> but that's getting better too, right? Some of the work they're doing is just gorgeous. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, I do remember the long ago headline when Superman came out and it says, you will believe a man can fly. Mm -hmm. We've made some strides since then. <laughs> hey, I, I believed it. I bought fully into Christopher Reeve flying. Yeah, exactly. I bought into Christopher Reeve. He's Superman for me. George oh, yeah. Reeve, not so much, but Christopher Reeve. Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I some of us still remember. Did you remember that there was a 19... 
30s Batman, or was it yes. 30s or 40s Batman? Yes. And watching a man in saggy tights struggle to climb a fire escape is <laughs> is a little bit hilarious. <laughs> Just to say how superheroes have traveled well into the future. Yes. Yeah. You had another story that made me think about things that could be made into movies. Talk about Midnight in Spanish Gardens. I mean, I know it's not releasing, but isn't that something that could actually, go? Actually, 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 I can release something on that because I've just signed a contract for the audiobook for that. <gasps> really? Yeah. Right. Who's doing your narration? Uh, I, <laughs> I don't have in front of me. Suzanne something. Heck, ooh, okay. There's a Suzanne that I really like. This is one of those that I mostly like reading books, but there's like four or five voices that I've been known to buy the books just because of the narrators. So that is another, you know, angle of selling people on it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just got told by my publisher that she had expressed an interest in the book. So we got talking and she said, yeah, I'll do it. So she's doing it and it's coming out in September. But um, the Spanish Gardens is or was, it doesn't exist anymore, it used to exist, it was a real place, it was the worst kept secret of the University of Cape Town. Um, it, it was passed on from the undergraduate to the undergraduate to the undergraduate, and it was not signposted, it was not well lit, it was not findable until you knew where it was. <laughs> Um, it was down this dark alley which you would kind of be leery of going down if you didn't know what was at the end of it. But it was this place that people just used to go for all the celebrations that you could possibly imagine. It was the, pl the place you went to for your graduations. It was the place where a lot of people got asked for to be married. It was, it was just one of those magical places. And the really weird thing is that without... Um, you know, synchronizing watches, as it were. If I told you about it and described it to you, and then you went away and you found someone else who was there at the same time generally, but didn't know me from Adam and asked that person to describe it to you, you would get the same description. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. place yeah. was one of those fixed points in time and space that everybody would, you know, go to. And it was, it just existed. And I have a feeling it just folded up in itself and disappeared during the times that it wasn't there. It was just amazingly magical. It was just a matter of time before something happened to me in that thing. And I married that to the end of the world, which was the, the Mayan end of the world in a New Year's Eve kind of thing. Oh, cool. I love it. And like I yes. say, that is the sort of the thing that absolutely I want to watch on TV right after I'm done. But what I did was I sent uh, five people who went there as a sort of a, a reunion after many years of being apart, uh, having been kind of college colleagues together. But they all went to the, the, the reunion at the same at the New Year's Eve kind of thing. And they all went, they passed through a door or through one of the restrooms that said out of order. Mm -hmm. And they got given a choice. They got given an extra an, an, an alternative lifestyle life, if you like. And they lived an alternative life, maybe having made different choices. And then they were given a choice. So do you want to stay at this one or do you want to have your other life back? Nice. I like that very much. Yeah. I too have been at a university that had a secret garden in St. Andrews. Um, there was this very special place just outside the city that was all locked up and not tended to at all. And I, I still have no idea who owned it, but it was it was gorgeous. Um, there was sort of, um, I'm gesturing 
helpfully here. Um, there were structures, buildings, not quite, you know, something better than huts. Um, and there was there was a stream and there were ponds and there were formal laid out gardens. Um, ah, but you see, that was a real garden. My Spanish garden was not a garden at all. It was just this little place that was tucked away at the end of the alley. It was not a garden and it had very little to do with Spain. I don't know why it was called the Spanish garden. <laughs> yeah, uh, um, but but you know, I mean, it was it was a magical place to go and a magical place to be. We 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 did some theater rehearsals there and stuff. Um, and and so yeah, of course, I used it in my fiction. Um, I I um um, um dead of light. Um, as the the hero's sister being found dead there. Well, that's cheerful. It's it's a very cheerful book. Yes, <laughs> yes, it is. So, yeah, actually, it's a very good book. Of course, too. So, we have until November for the fourth one. So, I want to say that everybody out there has a chance to read *The World Weavers*, which is *The Gift of the Unmage*, *Spell Spam*, and *Cyber Mage* in anticipation of the fourth one coming out. What's the fourth one's name? Can we know that? Dawn of Magic. Dawn of Magic? Cool. Dawn of Magic. And who's the publisher? Uh, Book View Cafe, actually. I thought, I thought it would. Oh, best ever. We love the Book View Cafe. Yeah. Well, we will put links uh, both to where you can buy the first few books now and towards Bookview Cafe to learn more about this on our website, which is www.ridersdrinkingcoffee.com. Thank you so much for coming and spending time with us today, Alma. Thank you for having me. I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to diving into a modern girl action learning magic, especially in computers. We're gonna have lots of talks after this, right? Yeah, <laughs> just don't open any, <laughs> any spam. Again, lots of talks. That's what I do for a living. <laughs> You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spiders are David Welsh and John Schmidt. Our intro and exit music are both by Michael Ingberg. You can hear more from Michael Ingberg on manyhatsmusic.com. Our podcast sponsors are Jekyll Designs, The Bean Stream, Arm Street, an honorable mention to anybody who funds new reading projects across the U.S. And hey, thanks for listening. <laughs>